So before we, um, before we share communion together this evening, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time thinking about food. I'm sure I'm not the only one that doesn't mind spending a little bit of time stopping and thinking about food. Food's good. I like food. don't think I'm the only one. It was at a meal when Jesus stopped his disciples, asked them just to put down their whatever they were doing, stop the conversations they were having, and called them to focus on the bread and the wine. And I know it was said last week in the services, as we spoke about remembrance, or maybe if you're at Sunnymead, it may have been said today, that this is the one time when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a very specific instruction to do this in remembrance of Jesus. You see, food and drink are important, aren't they? Because if we don't eat for a day, we notice it as a direct physiological impact on us. We feel hungry. We begin to crave food. I don't know how long it is that the human body can go without food, but eventually we cannot function without food. In an even shorter amount of time, we cannot function without water, something to drink. I always feel that Sometimes we miss the point a little bit of harvest. It's difficult in the Western world when we can walk into a supermarket and we don't really have proper food shortages. It's difficult to remember God's goodness at harvest. On the day on Remembrance Sunday, the day of remembrance, we can, we've, all, we've all known pain at different times in our lives. We've all known the pain of, of, of losing someone. And so we can at least begin to imagine a a, a fraction of what it felt like for the families who lost loved ones in conflict. And as we gathered round the War Memorial in the High Street this morning, having um, done the video that was shown last week and learnt some some of the stories behind some local people, that's what I was thinking of this morning. And it helped me to kind of grab hold of of that that sense of remembrance and what people have done in order that we can have the freedom that we enjoy today. But it's difficult when we think of food. I don't know about you, but I personally have never known a lack of food. I've never known what it's like not to be able to simply walk into a kitchen and turn on a tap, or at the very least when I used to do a lot of orienteering, go to a mountain stream and fill a water bottle. I remember two instances where maybe my relationship with food has been tested slightly. The very first one involved a stream. It wasn't a mountain stream. It was a stream that runs through the fields in Ramsden Heath when I was a kid. And... My brother, who I looked up to and respected massively, and still do, um, he assured me that using his 
T-shirt, which he'd carefully folded so it was four, four layers thick, hurled over one bottle, which he'd collected water in from the stream. It was filtered by tipping it into a cup. And he said, look how clean it is. And I looked into this water at the age of, I think, about seven or eight, maybe slightly older. I looked into it, and all the mud and the, the seeds and the other bits and pieces, the leaves and things that had gathered there, they'd all been taken out in the T-shirt. And the T-shirt was this reassuring grey browny colour. And I looked into the cup, and it actually it looked all right. It looked all right. And he said, that's filtered, you can drink that. Now, he didn't expect me to take, take him at his word, but I obediently just glug, 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 glug. He looked at me, and I saw that he was less confident in his, in his assurances than I had been. But it was too late by then. Um, and I then had a, a week off school <laughs> with severe illness um, because it turned out that the local farmer had been spraying his crops. Yeah, and this water may have looked clean it may have looked pure enough but it was far from it i shook my faith in the water that comes and in my brother obviously <laughs> the second one came when i was about 10 years older and again um i was in, out in the welsh mountains and this was uh, this was my my brother-in-law and um, he used to be in the infantry, and he was very into his outdoor survival and stuff like that, as was I, and I think I was 15, 16. Um, and we'd gone up to the, um, the hills in Snowdonia, and we'd taken minimal kit with us, and we used to love doing things like that. He was very good. I was, I was all right. I, could, I knew what I was doing to a certain degree. And um, one of the, uh, we each took a, a fly fishing rod, and we'd go up there, and we'd find lakes, and they're teeming with brown trout. Um, and anyone with a, the slightest idea of how to fish can catch trout. Um, I haven't got the slightest idea of how to fish, but him and I agreed one day that we were only going to eat what we caught. We had, a, we had a little bit of rice and sweet corn, we're going to add that to it, but we said, we, we're gonna, that's going to be our meal, we're going to catch. And I thought, this is, this is brilliant, oh, fantastic. It really appealed to my sense of adventure. Until having got up at six in the morning and been fishing all day and had several bites and then lost them, and I was thinking, it's now seven in the evening. We haven't eaten for 12 hours and I am hungry. When you're outside in the fresh air, your appetite is really amplified, and I was really hungry. And every, every fish that jumped seemed to be mocking me, goading me. Every time I, I cast in and retrieved the fly across the water and nothing happened. And then when I was just about to cast again, it seemed like suddenly a synchronised swimming team made up of brown trout was having a display in the middle of the lake and then I'd cast and it all went silent. Honestly, it was infuriating. And then my brother-in-law... I suddenly saw this splash as he was reeling in what turned out to be a, a brown trout, about a pound and a half, something like that, enough meat on it to, um, to give us each a decent meal. And we cooked it over a fire. And do you know, that tasted so sweet because I was so hungry. I'd put myself in a position where my relationship with food took on a different perspective Suddenly, I was relying on being able to catch a fish, and thankfully I had someone with me who was better at fishing than I was, because I would have gone hungry. But you see, so often, as with those two stories, the second especially, 
the focus of that story is on the food. It might seem a silly thing to say, but we make so many mistakes when we share meals together in the things that we focus on. It's very easy to focus on the food. Is it too hot, too cold, too spicy, too bland, too sweet, too dry? Or the timing of the food. I'm not, not, eat, not coming to communion. I'm not eating after seven o'clock. I won't get to sleep for hours. They've invited me around for dinner, but I'm not going to go. They eat so early. They've got kids. Number of courses or the atmosphere. All these different things that we can, we can focus on. But actually, when we share a meal, the most important aspect, the most important aspect is the people that we share it with. It's the fellowship around the table. Scripture doesn't record what sort of quality the bread was or the wine. It focuses on what was said to the people, on the fellowship that took place. Whenever Jesus shared food, whenever we see him having a meal, we don't learn what's on the menu, we learn who is at the table. We've turned food sometimes, it seems, into something which it wasn't meant to be. You see, food is a gift from God. Food is a gift. We should remember that every day, not just, at, not just at harvest time. We should remember every day that what we have is a gift from God. But we've turned it into something convenient, something we can grab and eat on the go rather than stopping and sharing. Something that we can just simply take it in regardless of what it is rather than stopping and thinking, is this good for me? Do I need this? Is this going to benefit me? We can go to a gym or, or a, a sports shop and see um, stacks of health supplements, these, these massive big tubs of powder, which, you know, as a, as a bloke, they make you feel quite, quite um, uh, lacking because they, they show guys who clearly, you know, they're stacked and you think, mm, <laughs> yeah, not quite me. And I've been there before where I've thought, oh, you know, I wonder if I could get to that sort, you know, have a, have a physique to be proud of. Joe always scoffs at me, quite rightly. But that's because we can turn our food into something that dominates our self-image. Even diets. Now, don't get me wrong. It's good to, to treat our bodies with respect and not let ourselves get, get, get massively overweight or massively underweight. But what's our motivation? Is our motivation our self-image? We want to look a certain way. Or is our motivation that we want to take care of our body because we are made in the image of God? Food can be made into a refuge. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but food is a comfort for many of us. When we go through hard times, relationship difficulties, work difficulties, whatever it may be, we can find ourselves ordering Ordering in pizza, having a tub of ice cream, filling ourselves with, 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 with rubbish because it makes us feel better. We seek refuge in food rather than seeking refuge in God. Maybe food can be 
aspirational. Maybe we can aspire to cook as well as somebody else. Joe and I have got some friends who, um, uh, a couple of years ago now, we invited round for a barbecue one evening. And if I may say so myself, I do a very good rack of ribs. Or at least I did once. There's a recipe that a friend of mine in America gave me for, for a, um, a um, not a sauce, like a powder you rub into it. Um, and he, said, he told me exactly the, the type of ribs you need to get, how you need to prepare them, what you need to soak them in, um, how long for, how to cook them, exactly all the different spices and things to put into this, this, uh, this mix and then rub it all in. And I'd spent ages doing it. And once I did it and it was amazing. And I thought, that's fantastic. I've got a signature dish at last. I've got something I can cook. This is brilliant. And then we got some friends around a couple of weeks later and I did exactly the same thing. I'm sure I did. But when I unwrapped the foil proudly on the table in front of everybody, they were, they, it was a burnt offering. They were black. It was, it was awful. And I sort of hacked off with a fork the bits that might be edible and served them to our guests, and they very politely crunched their way through the meat. But it was awful. It was terrible. And do you know what? We've had people around before, uh, since then, and Joe said, Try doing that again. And I said, no, 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 no. Because the shame, the shame that I couldn't do it. But she said, don't worry about it. If it all goes wrong, we'll have a laugh and, and do something else. But I said, no, because I felt so stupid that this barbecue thing that I made, made a big deal out of, it all went really badly. And so now, <laughs> I, I refuse to cook if we've got people coming round. So scarred was I from the experience. But I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be. I made a mistake. We should try and try. But food kind of scared me. Cooking scares me now. I'm quite reluctant to do it. In Scripture, in 1 Kings, we read of the time under Solomon's rule when everything was hunky-dory, when God was pleased, when Solomon seemed to be running things just as he should be. One Kings chapter four, we read all about the the number of people that Solomon ruled over. We're told about his his chiefs of staff. We're told about those who, who ran the warehouses. We're told about what the warehouses contained. We're told about the, the daily provisions. And there's this great verse in, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20. It says, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. At that moment, God provided enough for everyone. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. We're told Solomon's daily provisions, 30 cores of fine flour, 60 of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms of the west of the river, from Tipash to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, 
lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. So there was all this provision, all this, this meat, this food, this cereal, this grain and flour, which was, which was given out, which was shared out amongst the kingdoms. But as well as that, everybody was sufficient, each man under his own vine and fig tree. So it seems that, that arguably the closest that mankind has come to pleasing God as a whole in Scripture, that was the moment when the provision of food was equally distributed and everybody had what they needed. The prophet Joel, having lived through The, the scattering of God's people, the storming of Jerusalem, having been taken into captivity. Joel looks at the rebuilding of Jerusalem, sees the way that the provisions aren't being used responsibly, they're not being used properly. And he makes a prophecy. He says, if, if God isn't honoured, if things aren't done the way that God wants them to be done. He says, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. So Joel looks around and sees the way that, that God's provision is being, is being misused, it's being abused, it's not being shared out and distribu- distributed well. And he says, if we don't use this properly, it's going to be gone. God's going to use this to, to teach us another lesson. We've just had one, but we're taken into captivity by our fiercest enemy. Jerusalem's been, been destroyed and we've got the job of rebuilding it and, and yet we're making our mistakes again. Are we not going to learn? But Joel gives us hope. Joel gives us hope and again, the language that he uses is the language of provision, of food and wine, food and drink. Again, it's God's provision to us. We cannot survive without food and drink. We cannot survive without what God gives us. Joel says, if, he says to his people, if, 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 we, if we start coming back to God, if we start trying, then, then God will reply to us. He will say, I'm sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. There is hope and promise in those words. When we come around the communion table, there is promise. When, when, Jesus, when Jesus spoke to his disciples on that night, he said, do this in remembrance of me. 
They had no idea what was going to happen. It, it hadn't yet happened. When he said those words, he was still going to have moments of, of temptation, moments where he thought, oh, I don't want to go, go through with this. I don't want to go through with the suffering and the pain that I know is ahead of me. And so there's absolutely no way the disciples could have known what he was talking about. So there was, there was a, an implied promise in those words. This is an act of remembrance. Through this, I want you to remember something that's not yet happened. That's a promise that it's going to happen. Otherwise, you can't remember it. So there is a promise in communion. And there is also a presence. This meal was eaten and drunk in the presence of Jesus. He was the one that administered it, that served it, that broke the bread, that poured the wine the first time. We find promise and we find presence. That promise was kept. We know what this represents now because the promise was kept. And the presence is also kept. As we gather together this evening, Jesus, through his spirit, is with us. When we go through this time of communion, when we eat the bread when we drink the wine. We're not simply obeying a ritual. We're encountering Jesus. What these elements represent is so significant because they are direct gifts from Jesus. So every time that we eat and we drink, every time we share a meal, let's remember that the most important things at that table It's not the food, it's not the timing, it's not the number of courses, it's not the the, the venue or the ambience, it's not the noise that's being made or anything else. It's the people that we share the food with and the presence of the one who is unseen as we share it. We're going to pray. And then we're going to sing two songs to prepare us for communion. And during that time, I invite you to bring before God anything that has become a barrier, anything that has replaced him at the centre of your life, anything that maybe has, has pulled you away from the path that he wants you to be on. And while we're praying... While we're singing, let's repent of our sin. Let's give thanks for God's everlasting provision to us. And let's give thanks for his promise and his presence this evening. Lord, thank you for what these elements represent. We thank you that Jesus went through with the crucifixion. 
we thank you, Lord, that he chose the cross for us. Because he knew there was no way of us reconciling ourselves to you. He knew that the history of mankind was one of constantly yo-yoing. Sometimes coming close to living as we should, but never lasting for long before we slipped away again. And Father, we know that in our own daily lives, we'd still do that today. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that you will help us to to take away any barriers that we've allowed to build up. Lord, we ask that you will help us to prevent those barriers from building up again. We ask you will help us in our daily lives as we strive to be the people you want us to be. Father, we know that you've put in us everything that we need. We know that you provide everything that we need. And although as a, as a, as a world we fail to distribute what you've given effectively, we know there is still starvation, there is still drought. Father, we know also that we are so blessed to have what we have. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the food that we have, for the drink that we have. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we have through your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.